Welcome to Mind the Skills Gap, where we explore the barriers to skills transfer and how you can overcome them, flavoured with a sprinkle of neuroscience. In this episode, Donald Clark, currently one of the most sought-after experts on AI and learning, explores practical steps you can take if you're new to AI and curious to learn more. As he talks to me from a conference in Senegal, his passion for how AI will help to solve some of the big global challenges in education and medicine shines through. And find out how AI drives productivity so that you could design training in minutes, not months. I'm Stella Collins, an evangelist for the neuroscience of learning and co-founder and chief learning officer at Stella Labs. Watch out Skills Gap, we're coming for you. And welcome back to the Mind the Skills Gap podcast. This is a special podcast we're doing about AI because it's hit the streets and we're all talking about it. I've got a huge interest in AI, having first come across it way back in the 1980s when I was studying psychology and I happened to work in a department where the professor was an expert on the AI of vision. So that was my first introduction to what AI could do for us in a kind of very psychological sense. During the 1980s when I was working in IT, I actually got really interested in expert systems, which were kind of a, a precursor to the current AI we have. I think one of the big challenges was that tech wasn't quite available to actually support the, the, um, the AI that people were kind of wanting to do. And now here at Stellar Labs, we are now actively using AI in producing uh, programs, but also in supporting people to transfer their learning into workplace to improve their performance and to improve their productivity. So I'm really specially pleased to be talking to Donald Clark today, who is an expert on AI. You may well know him as the CEO of Wildfire. He's an expert on learning. Um, I really recommend you check out his um, blog post on 200 plus great learning experts. Um, he's really busy right now traveling around the world talking about AI. And his book, AI for Learning, is a fantastic one that I really recommend you read. We'll put all that information in the show notes later on. But first of all, Donald, welcome to the Mind the Skills podcast. And tell us where you are today. All right. Thank you, Stella. Yes. Well, I'm actually in Senegal, which is on the West African coast, many thousands of miles away from uh, from you in Belgium at the moment. And you're right. Yes, I've been all over them you know, Singapore, all over Europe, all sorts of places uh, because the thing has exploded, you know, since the launch of chat GPT uh, three in November last year, then four in March and then Bing and uh, Bard and Bert and you know, all sorts of things. Uh, the world has just gone mad for it. But it, the, this is quite a unique, the interesting thing about that statement you made there, Stella, is this is the fastest adopted technology in the history of our species. This is not just a learning issue. This is like a, a human issue. This is the future of the species, as it were. So I think it's a monumental effect. Uh, but it's interestingly, I, I really do believe that learning is the number one beneficiary of this technology and that we should embrace it and go with it because the opportunities are literally mind blowing. I know it's interesting hearing your little story about AI as well, Stella, because it sort of follows mine in parallel. So when I was at college uh, in the US, it was an Ivy League place called Dartmouth, and that was where the first conference in AI, modern conference in AI, took place in 1956. That's where I first came across the concept in, the, in, a, in a sort of 
in technically the programming thing. And then in the 90s, we built an expert, myself and Clive Shepard, they built an expert system for British Telecom. It, it was a nightmarish thing because, as you rightly say, the technology wasn't strong enough, processing power, memory, and so on, to do it properly. So we were right at the limits of the tech. We, we did that. And then, of course, really for the last, well, now really seven or eight years, that's all I've been doing, just AI and learning, because I was convinced that this would happen. Uh, so now that it has happened, and now, of course, we're working with you good cell, uh, cell labs to build an extraordinary, I think, extraordinary learning-focused application of uh, these large la uh, language models. Fantastic. So I know you were, oh, I, last time I saw you, we were at the Learning Tech Conference. Um, yeah. And there, I think it was really interesting that, you know, the, the reaction was, your, your talk was hugely uh, popular, you know, that was standing room only, sitting room only. Um, but what I really liked about it was you talked about it being scary and exciting at the same yeah. time. And I'd just like you to expand a little bit on that. I think that's right. I think it's a, when I wrote, I wrote another book called Learning Technologies, and that, that was really about the history of technology in the big picture. You know, I think we need to take our professional way more seriously because, and not regard learning technology as something that was invented last week or when LMSs came in in 2000 or something. You know, so I, I go back to a really, you know, the invention of fire, the images in caves, which clearly had a learning function, through to writing, printing, right through to the, uh, you know, broadcast media, television, radio, and then ultimately into the internet and now artificial intelligence. So that's a big, broad sweep there. And I think it's important that we, we, we get that view of technology, which is what I tried to do in that talk. In other words, let's take it really seriously because this is a big deal. As I say, it's a big deal for the species, not just learning. But we are the learning species. We are sort of homo technus. You know, we've, what differentiates us, one is language, very definitely. Interestingly, these large language models show that languages seems to be the fundamental wellspring of intelligence rather than it being the other way. Uh, a lot of theories think of language as a, a phenomenon that emerges from intelligence. It was seen as Wittgenstein, Vygotsky, and several other people said, no, language is intelligence always. It's what makes us intelligent. So I think we have a lot to learn from AI in the learning field even. And uh, you know, some of the, I've, done, I've created some podcasts and this there's a whole history here of the interchange between you know the stuff you're interested uh, in instead of the neuroscience actually the study of the brain has influenced ai but the dialectic has gone the other way as well and that's been true of all for almost a century i did a whole podcast on that one topic and i think we have to recognize that we're in a learning game but so is ai this yeah, is the technology yeah. that learns interestingly in, in the book i've just um done the third edition for my book um I've written a chapter on uh, self-directed learning. And actually one yeah. of the things that kind of was a piece of evidence for that was instead of it being um, AI leading neuroscience, it was neuroscience leading, no, instead of it being neuroscience leading AI, it was AI leading neuroscience. So they're discovering things that they've kind of tested in AI, AI and then they're discovering the neuroscience behind it. So really, in, I think that combination between the two is is just so fascinating. Yeah, I think it is. It's a dialectic, really. You know, it bounces back and forth and then both progress. Yeah, yeah. Pace. I think what's quite interesting is just this recent episode because AI has been around for a long time. Many of the techniques used actually have been around for a long, long time. We just haven't had the technology, processing power, devices to deliver it. But this is sort of unique, this one, because it came as a surprise even to people who worked in AI. Just how mind blowingly powerful it was. It's frighteningly, to go back to your question, 
I think that's right. I think it, anything that's very, very new, we have that inbuilt negativity bias or confirmation bias about being slightly worried or, you know, it induces some angst. Because immediately you use the thing. I mean, hundreds of millions of people are using this now. I mean, you know, it was one billion uses in February alone. God knows wow. what March and April may have been. But I think you use it, and for your first thing is, God, that's amazing. And then the second thing is, wow, that's amazing, but wow, like, what are the consequences of this? Yes. It's so powerful that it's slightly frightening. Yeah. Uh, but that's okay. I think that's just a natural human reaction to all technology. It was true of printing. It was true of writing. Uh, you know, it was true when, when our species invented fire. Imagine, imagine the person who just suddenly made a fire in front of the rest of the hunter-gatherer group. Wow, <laughs> what is this? <laughs> Even now, if you go to one of these um, sort of uh, parks where they, they kind of show you old old skills, if you actually see somebody light a fire without a match, it's yeah. still wow. You know, we're still excited. Well, and I think I it mean, is our natural tendency as humans to to react to anything that is new and and to to view it as with caution because that's that's how we've evolved to view yeah, new stuff with caution, right. but also to approach it once you've kind of you know, decide it's not going to actually bite you, then you can start agree. to approach it. I only agree with that. Uh, someone, uh, she said to me, you know, I feel slightly sinful when I use this technology. And I think that's sort of, that, that captures more, more it's, not, it's not fright, you know, it's not fright night type thing. It's really, oh, this is so powerful. I'm a bit nervous about it, you know. It induces a little bit of angst because you feel as though there's some sort of other entity behind it. But of course, this is an illusion. There is no ghost in the machine. There is no mind. Uh, you know, it's competent, but it, without comprehension. And the danger, actually, sometimes I think in the act, so there's all sorts of ways you can express your worry. But I think we, I think one of the mistakes, and I've written quite a lot about this now, is in just thinking it is an entity with intention, with reflection, that it wants to do things that would ha this is harmful. This is just not true. You know, the anthropomorphization, isn't it? Yeah, it's to be honest, it's quite simply maths and software. The truth be known, uh, and it has no consciousness. It has no agency or executive function in that sense. So uh, that's why I think we shouldn't be too worried about this. And I often say, I often use this example. You know, I used it in that talk. Uh, it was quite an interesting talk of learning technology. It's just when you, when you have a room that's absolutely mobbed, you know, and you see people's eyes and you see the fright a little bit. You see the excitement, but also the fright. But if I, I, I remember using the example, I say, suppose I came to you and said, I have a piece of technology in my back pocket here. It will change the world. But here's the deal. One and a half million people will die horrible, mangled, bloody deaths on the back of it. Would you? Do you want the technology? Do you want to open the Pandora's box? And what most people would say, no, that's too, that's like a world war of casualties every year. And by the way, there's another two... A two million who will get injured and maimed. Oh, doubt, no, we don't want that. Let's can it now. But that technology is the car, and everybody in that room drives a car. I have yeah. never have driven a car. I'm unusual for all sorts of reasons. But we drive cars, and we but we we ignore the fact that one and a half million people per year die, and another two million get injured. And so I think that's why some because we come to us like utilitarian benefits and advantages you know, conclusion on it, the benefits outweigh the advantages. And I think with AI, we've got to do the same. And I think I, I see a lot of the discussion just focusing on just one side, like what, what, what are all the bad consequences? And I think learning and healthcare for me are the two big benefits.
the two pillars of the future, really, because those most in need of it, education are furthest from it. I'm here in Africa. Believe me, the poverty here is eye-watering, you know, literally. And uh, we often have a very Eurocentric or Northern Hemisphere view of the world. But I'm here, you know, with people who work in this area. And uh, boy, do they need this. They need it badly. And the interesting thing is, yeah, I mean, you might think, you know, the, I hate this sort of picture of the the only picture of Africa is this starving child poverty thing. This, this, you know, I'm in a in a fantastic sort of you know four or five star hotel here. There's a massive middle class in Africa. We have to get out, out of this old view of Africa, but still, we we shouldn't impose Northern Hemisphere language, for example, just English and French on Africa because those are the two big colonial languages. And here, yesterday, we had the the launch from a actually from Facebook from Lan Yan Lekun, who almost the Nobel Prize in AI launching a language model that is competent in 4,000 languages. Great, that's amazing. Any of them African languages, because this continent has more languages than any other continent, because it's very it's very ancient. This is where we came from. So I think we're looking at a future for... I'm, I'm far more interested in the application of this stuff for, you know, that huge uh, mother load of people who don't have the opportunities that we have had in our very comfortable context in Yes, in Europe. indeed. Please excuse this interruption. At Stella Labs, we help you build business critical skills, not just knowledge. Add the missing pieces to your learning journeys to take people from knowing to doing. Want to know how? Visit stellalabs.eu to learn more. Now, back to the episode. So just going back to that, you, you said, you know, it, it's, it's basically a bit of math. Can you just, for, you know, for the for the uninitiated, perhaps sure. who are kind of wondering, what, what is AI? Can you perhaps explain, yeah. you know, words of maybe more than one syllable, but simple terms? Yeah, no, I've got you. That's, it's, a, that's a really good request, actually. The first thing I, I always say is AI is not one thing. So these large language models, GPT and so on, are one species of AI, but it's like a tree with loads of branches on it. And some of the branches grow really quickly and then shrivel up a bit and others grow really fast. And then, you know, it's, it's sort of different. It's almost like the Grand Prix, you know, some cars race ahead and then others, then some crash and stop and others leap ahead and so on. So it's always going forward and fits and starts. But to focus on the, let's focus on this one area, chat GTP, GPT, uh, uh, and it's not just that. These are large language models, LLMs, don't worry about the jargon, really. Basically, what the technology has done is scooped up all of the text that we see on the internet. You know, everything you can imagine from Reddit, Wikipedia, books, corporate stuff, websites. It's massive. This is the cultural accumulation in text that we, over centuries, okay? So you have the works of Plato in there as well as, you know, and Egyptian texts as well as contemporary documentation. You scoop all that stuff up, and then you use it as a training mechanism. You sort of feed the bear <laughs> with this stuff until it gets super smart. This thing is absorbing all this information. It stores it in a very clever way, giving a relationship between all the words. So the word might be dog and puppy or dog and cat or dog and leaf. And it's the relationship between words that really matter. Then it has a thing called the attention. In other words, before it spits words back at you, 
it has some special math that allows it to, in a sense, focus on what you need. So when you type something into it, it's not Google, it's not retrieving anything, it's not it's not like sampling in a rap song or something. It's actually creating freshly minted text. Every word is freshly created. And so it's spitting like a machine gun <laughs> on a probabilistic basis, one word followed by the next, followed by the next. It's mad, really, that this should work at all. It's so simple, though. That's what shocked people. This technique seems so simple, but it turned out to be immensely powerful, mainly because we've fed it so much knowledge that this thing is actually now an expert in every subject. It's a mind-blowing idea. It almost has a degree in every known subject, plus a depth of other knowledge outside formal theoretical knowledge because language captures things about the real world. <laughs> you know, it, you know, if it says, yeah, I've got some reddish, reddish pink uh, sweater on, like you've got now, that well, reddish pink and it's a sweater. That's something that you sell are wearing right now. So it does capture stuff in the real world, not just language on its own. There's some deficiencies in the model. It doesn't know about time or action or agency or observation and so on. But that's coming. So hopefully that's it. It's spitting out words on a probability basis. And amazingly, it's smarter than us because it does it super fast and it draws upon the sum total of human knowledge. It's almost like a vast socially constructed network. It's us. When we use it, when you chat to it, remember it's all about dialogue, you're not asking it, it's not like Google, you're not asking it to find something. You're asking it a question and it's replying. But it's That's what I really like about, you know, playing with ChatGPT. You ask it something and you think, oh, that's not quite what I want. So then you just, yeah. you know, you ask it to it amplify in some way or simplify in some way what it's already given you and you then get and you, you kind of gradually work towards the yeah. kind of solution you're you're hoping for the kind of you know information you're looking for so i really like that kind of iterative approach which is i think we've talked about before it's you know it's a much more human way of yes <laughs> we're kind of working towards a, a mutual understanding of something exactly, of course yeah. we hopefully can understand it it doesn't understand it's still just finding it's like a sort of super fancy predictive text only it is yeah the, the, it will change in its nature though because if we move on to a really interesting question what's next because at the moment it's doing this spitting out words on a probability basis and it has a little sort of almost like working memory because when you ask it a series of prompts it, it knows what the previous prompts are but that yeah. that's limited so the big very much like our own yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Let's not use humans as a benchmark. You know, we sleep eight hours a day, we're full of biases, we forget almost everything and we die. That there's you know, so AI does none of those things. It goes on forever and keeps learning. That's what's powerful and a bit worrying. It transcends us as a species in that sense. But some of the interesting add-ons in terms of the software that are being worked on as we speak and are being delivered is one this search for the you know, is the information accurate? So I've got the Bing app on my phone, you know, but that's pretty good there because it gives you the website from which it draws some other, it almost does a check and it will tell you what websites it's gone to to find that additional information and feed the model. So we're getting that provenance, where has things come from type stuff in the models now, Bing is available, I mean, literally hundreds of millions of people are now using that. So accuracy is another one that's increased enormously. Many of the examples I see of, oh, look, it didn't do this correctly type thing, the clickbait stuff on Twitter is actually chat GPT-3, not 4, or Bing. So what, what people are doing is, it's like going back and using Wikipedia 
2004 or something. Of course, it was like that in the early days because it was, you know, it was, we were still feeling our way. But Wikipedia in 2023 is pretty good. And uh, actually, yeah. another wonder because it was crowdsourced. Who saw that coming? That, you know, and people tried to ban it way back in the day. Yes, I remember it. <laughs> yeah, and now, now we use it without thinking. In fact, it's just a wonder, isn't it? We, we almost forget. We don't regard it as wonders because it's so normalised. It's now. normal now. Yes, we've completely accepted it. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. where you look when you want to know something. That's right. So, and another couple of things there. It will also be given more of what you might call memory. It's not exactly like human memory, but we'll give more of a memory so that it can cope with the sort of querying that we have. It is more suited to our needs as humans. And then a third area is just what you call a wor world model. In other words, it doesn't really know about the external world. It's just got this in it's inside language and deals with just language. But people like Jan LeCun and so on are working on other areas of AI that would inform large language models in such a way that has a knowledge of the external world. You could feel it's, feed it sensory data and so on. It's not as if, in fact, you don't feed it with a world model. You let it discover what the world is. If you see, I mean, that's... If you feed it, you then you get all the human biases about what the world is. But actually, and exposing it to stuff, and it can work out what it needs to know. Exactly. So there's, yeah. you know, provenance, accuracy, memory, world world models. They're all being worked on as we speak, and there's some really exceptionally talented people working in this area. You know, people like Jan LeCun and Jeffrey Hinton. These these are groundbreaking thinkers. The you know the intellects of the day, really, who are who are changing the the very way we as a species deal with knowledge. It's the relationship with knowledge that's changed here, you know? It's no longer somebody creates this stuff, we teach it to them. Or somebody creates this stuff, we retrieve it on the internet, pull it out. We now go back to a very, I think, a very human thing, which is asking it in, in a dialogue, you know, a dialectic. Which is much easier for our brains to actually process because we can take in one, you know, one thing at a time as opposed to a huge... You know, what tends yeah. to happen is you get a huge tranche of knowledge thrown at yeah. you in typical training yeah. um, that you can't process. So if, if you're having a dialogue, you've got time to process it and think about it as well. I think this is really a I, I did a whole podcast on this because I, I wholly agree with that observation there, Stella. So in general, in terms of learning theory or cognition in general, we have clearly evolved clearly evolved not to sit and look at PowerPoint anywhere <laughs> or learn maths. We've evolved to speak and learn from other people in dialogue. And not multiple choice questions or you know, No, obviously but, not. <laughs> but actually speak. Yeah, what do you think? Well I think this. What we're doing now is exactly how the brain is finally attuned to dialogue. And that's why I think this thing has been so easily adopted by everyone. You know you can just go on and uh, whatever your work is you suddenly go, wow, I've got this little problem. Can it solve that? And you go, well, it just did that as well. Because that's yeah. how, how we behave. We've behaved for uh, millions of years like this since the invention of language. Yeah. And I think it's just playing to our true evolution, evolved brains and sensibilities. That's why it seems so wondrous. But it's not wondrous when you think about it because books are, you know, writing is only 5,000 years old. A the whole sort of bookish world really only came about in reality post-reformation. Yeah, yeah, once publishing. Yeah. So we're only talking about 500 years, really. It's a, it's a blip in terms of our evolution. It's certainly not relevant in terms of the evolution of the brain that period. So I think it plays to those evolutionary tendencies. Yeah, I agree. 
So one of the things I'm I'm sort of concerned about with AI is going to be super easy for people to create more and more and more content. And you know, yeah. we don't need more content. There's more than enough out there. There's more you, know, you can you can ask it for anything. So I'm really interested in how you think it might impact on on productivity and skills because human, you know, knowledge is one thing, but until you actually apply that knowledge, until you do something, you talked about learning a few minutes ago being, you know, the conversation, but actually learning is more than that because we need to learn to do things too. So yeah. I'm, I'm interested in what you think about how it's going to impact on productivity and, and skill building. Well, First, in terms of learning generally, the one thing you notice about this tool when you first start using it is how good it is in going in the other direction. So, we've you know we've both been involved in learning for a long time, and I think, you know, I get nods all the time when I say this at conferences and so on. You know, we we the whole content business is start has got a bit bloated and over engineered. You know, these hours and hours of e-learning that people set or load two or three day courses in class or whatever it is, it's all a bit overwrought. And people feel that, you know, they get weary. There's a weariness about all that. It's a bit of a waste sometimes. Oh, yeah. I mean, all we're doing is filling out the time. A lecture is one hour because the Sumerians had a base 60 number system. That's the only reason it's a one hour. <laughs> Nothing in the psychology of learning says somebody should sit for an hour while you talk at them uh, and don't speak to them at all. In fact, it feels a bit weird, which is why kids don't turn up for lectures. But the... I think when you use this thing, the first thing you notice is how good it is as summarization. So when you use it in learning, as we've been doing for many, many years now, summarization is the big core hit here. Because you know when you get these big training documents, actually, nobody's going to read this. And the first thing you have to do is hammer it down, cut it till it bleeds, then cut it again. Less is more. All that stuff we know about the psychology lab can be achieved by this any second. So you get this productivity here where, oh, God, that, would, that report would have taken me three, four, five hours. I've just written it in like five minutes. So I think this is why it's so congruent with learning theory. It plays to the less is more thing. But it's not, it's not just that. It's, the, it's not only producing text, of course, it's now producing relevant images. And I mean relevant images, not a stock shot of an office or people leaning eagerly over a laptop. You know, all that stock imagery you go, Really? They're not like any office I've seen. You know, <laughs> everybody looks so beautiful. You know, everybody's well coat, forward, beautiful shirts and ties. There's no office on the planet ever looks like this, of course. But I think what we have here is the production of any image in the context of any organization. It can be finely tuned to even your branding. You know, the curtains could be that shade of a Pantone color that suits your color. All that. Anything you want, really. But it will produce, produce images in seconds. And that used to take a long time. It was very expensive. It can produce audio, so we'll be speaking to these systems. It can now produce video amazingly. So we've been producing avatars of ourselves, you know, which are living, speaking. It looks like me, this sort of rather old, scruffy, bearded Donald. Uh, but, you know, I look around and, it, and I can speak, and it's properly lip-synced and so on. For $145, you can create that. And all you do is speak it at your smartphone, give it three minutes of video and 100 sentences. And it speaks with my accent. That's yeah. astonishing. Like I have a digital twin. So I think we're now looking at the less is more. I think the two big consequences I've been talking about recently, healthcare and learning. Learning and healthcare, one and two, I think these are big benefits. They both benefit from the concept, I think, of what I call a universal teacher or a universal doctor. Let's take the healthcare one first. Uh, the average GP or general practitioner, you walk in through the door, they have a 4.7% misdiagnosis rate. It's fairly universal across them. 
no matter how good you are as a medical student, you sort of have that because you can't, doctors just can't hold that sort of knowledge and their long term memory and their fallible. That's quite good, actually, 4.7%. It's quite low, but it's a bit worrying for losing the 4.7%, especially if it's, if it's the confusion of reflux with lung cancer, for example. Yeah. Now, supposing that chat GPT or a similar universal doctor thing gets down to 1% or 2%. Why would you walk through the door to the GP? You know, yeah. if it achieves this, then in, in where I am now, where you have one doctor to 10,000 people in this part of Africa, why would, you, why would you not do this? So that universal doctor is an interesting thing. But so is a universal teacher. Let's imagine by analogy, a teacher that knows everything, smart on every subject, and we build all the good science, all the stuff we know about cognitive psychology and neuroscience, into the model, the pre-prompting behind the scenes, like an invisible pedagogic hand, the invisible brilliant pedagogy, brilliant teaching, along with universal knowledge on everything, it knows more than any human being on any subject, why would we not use that for teaching? It's the same argument. Especially in places where uh, the teachers in, in Africa, very, you're very often the teachers are so poorly trained and paid, they're not turning up, it's barely subsistence level. And the class sizes are not 1 to 30, it's 1 to 50, 60. And, uh, and the chances of those young people, especially if they come from poor, low, they're very wealthy, uh, middle-class uh, African uh, 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 layers. But there's a vast way of the people who have, don't ha never have a chance of getting to college or university or into the sort of jobs we, we have. You can only dream of this. But imagine... We now have the ability to deliver because everybody here has a smartphone. You know, I drove to yeah. this hotel. There were, there were people on rickety old motorbikes actually using a smartphone. Yeah. Yes, apparently adoption there has been greater than yeah. almost anywhere else. That's how you get your piecework, you know, your sort of contract work through your smartphone. It's how you pay for your bills. It's sometimes a lot of healthcare stuff on it as well. It's that leapfrogging effect here. But imagine that leapfrog into the universal doctor, the universal teacher. And I think I, I see this as something on the horizon, by the way, not here right now, but there are steps we can take to get there. We're already in a position where we can get it to produce really good sort of learning materials on any subject. And we, as you know, we've been working on that together. And we, you know, I, I, I don't know about you, Stella, but I, I just, when you press that button and see it happen, it's like, wow. wow. Why I am, every time I, I press that button that says, you know, here are three questions to to you know fill in and then it press the button to say generate the behavioral uh requirements for this training yeah I, i'm just am amazed every time i think it's fantastic and you know if anybody's listening in then you know please talk to us have a look um we're happy to to show you there's a, a video on our website that shows you how it's working and it looks like magic it does. but we know it's not magic it's maths and science well it's, it's been a lot of hard work because we behind the scenes people you know Rather than just prompting, and, and I was asking or having a dialogue with Chatty, which you can do on your own, what we've done is, is in a sense, we've built a super prompter, which you don't see, but it's yeah. building all the pedagogy into the prompting yeah. for you, so you don't have to do it. Yeah. So on yeah. action, and so I, and I think what's wondrous about the approach we've taken is we've taken all the good stuff on transfer and action. And I was, if you really want people to, to actually be able to do things in the real world, you have to pay really close attention and focus and attention onto the word transfer and action. So our questions and scenarios, for example, that we're building into this are all action-orientated. You're making people think and do things. 
And the questions are not, you know, is the capital of Scotland Edinburgh, Glasgow, or Aberdeen? No, no it's in this situation, what would you do next? That, that yeah. all that yeah. good action orientated transfer, a uh, a performance focused stuff. Uh, I think that's what what makes all this unique. So one, this is why I think learning professionals have such a big role to play in all this because we know this stuff, we know what works, uh, and. Unfortunately, I think we've had too much emphasis on theoretical courses. You know, when you said there's a lot of that stuff out there, but it's far too theoretical, really. Yeah. But we now have a chance of making it both quick, super cheap, super easy to implement and produce, personalized, all that sort of stuff. At the click of a button, you were literally doing stuff in minutes, not months. Yeah. And I can say that with some authority because I ran one of the biggest companies in the field making this content. You know, I know how long it took and how expensive yeah. it was. There is absolutely no excuse now for charging people £25,000 an hour for e-learning uh, because uh, all those learning designers, believe me, behind the scenes are using these tools. So, <laughs> I think, and uh, but the truth, but that's not the point. As you say, that's not the point, more course production. The point is not just to make things faster, make them better. Yes, it's to actually do all the things that people currently say, but we haven't got time to support people to learn in the flow of work we haven't got time to support people to transfer their learning into the workplace and yeah. practice their new skills but if the time that is was being used for course creation can now be used to actually yeah. support people and you know and you can use the ai to do that as well but yeah. you know i think people people are human they still like human contact i think that's still a, a valuable yeah. um asset so you can now you know as, as a an lnd person as a designer you can now focus on the bits that are the bits that make the difference as opposed to the creating the course piece. And I think that's what's for me is, is really important. I think that's spot on. I mean, it's really important. I think I said this at the learning technologies talk that we upskill and move the pendulum, move the needle towards this. I, there's no excuse now for LD people not to know it. This is the most important technology on the planet. Now that's acknowledged for somebody and it's learning technology and it learns for a learning professional not to use it or look at it would be churlish. Yes. yes, indeed. <laughs> so I think, you know, we're duty bound to play with it. And that's what I recommend to people. Just get on and and, and do your learning yeah. thing on it. And you'll find yeah. you have more expertise than you think because, you know, a good graphic artist can prompt good graphics. Uh, a good learning designer can prompt good learning content because they know the language and the, and the theory of learning. And this is, this is what makes it so interesting for uh, of all the professions in the world, learning professionals, People who teach, train, and so on have most to gain from this. And I and think what it enables us to do. So, it, you know, in the past, I think most people go into L and D, go into learning, go into teaching because they want to make a difference. They want to support yeah. people. They want to help people. They want to make lives better. They want yeah. to help people grow. And then you end up kind of, you know, building training courses. Actually, yeah. what we can go back to is our real purpose of supporting activity supporting productivity yeah. supporting skill building yeah. which is the piece that gives people you know gives l and d people gives me anyway the thrill when you see people go oh wow i can do that now that's that's yeah. amazing i couldn't do that last week and, and today i can and i can continue to get better but where, where we can now go is back to our our roots really yeah if you split it into two camps here the formal and informal learning it clearly makes formal learning uh, certainly a lot cheaper. I mean, cost plummeting way down to like, you know, the, by orders of magnitude. It's cheaper, but it's also faster. That's why it's cheaper. But it's also better. 
<laughs> this is what I think, I think the most important thing. We can actually build good pedagogy into it so you don't have yeah. to. Because let's be honest, you know, you, you can go along to any learning conference and say anybody use learning styles and we see it in chat people are building platforms that based on learning styles and you go no, surely not surely have we learned nothing and in other words i think we have an opportunity here to sweep take the broom through the old 60 year old theory that we know is still hanging around you know, often think the LND is like that cartoon character and shoots off the edge of the cliff and hangs in midair before falling you know <laughs> we, we we're still we, we you know, we, we, we refuse to get rid of all that older stuff, but yet we know that contemporary science is much more informative and all that sort of stuff. But the formal learning, it certainly makes it faster, better, cheaper, um, and higher quality. But the informal learning as well, what has surprised people is almost everybody's using chat GPT, and funnily enough, as an informal learning tool. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. you know, you've got, you know, because, you know, oh, oh, I don't know the answer to that question. Oh, I'll ask it. Oh, well, that's performance support. Yeah, I think people are missing this point out, and I've seen really brilliant examples now of maintenance engineers in the field, people installing ducts and roofs, actually having it in their hands because the BS and ISO standards, they need to know them when they're putting the, this caliber of wire in and so on. Massive increases in productivity. The inspectors come along, it's right, as opposed to waiting on the inspector coming along, you have to rip the wire out again. So I think that at the co-face informal learning or even informal learning on research, so me and you have both written books, you're sitting there. This thing is absolutely fantastic for just getting that core stuff, you know, and then you're using it to enhance your critical thinking and moving forward and forms of expression. But this idea that it's just doing all the work for you is far from the truth. It's actually... No, you need you need to use your intelligence to yeah. to ask it the right questions and to then assess what's what comes out. I think that's really important. I think that's right. And uh, it's just that sense of surprise you get when it does something that you know would have taken you a long time before, but yes. you did it in seconds. Yes. That, well, that's what blows people's mind. So the papers are coming out now. The research is really interested on productivity, which is what your original question was about there. Stella. So there's a papers from MIT. There's a whole rack of them now that I've presented at conferences showing that the productivity thing is real. In other words, you get this order of magnitude increase in productivity. Even some stuff about healthcare where in one paper, 79% of the people when presented with a real doctor as opposed to chat GPT, prefer to chat GPT. Huge surprise. Well, it's not embarrassing to ask it certain questions, is it? (laughs) Well, that's one thing, yeah. And there's a really, we had an interesting question yesterday in Senegal about uh, can it help with mental health? And I really do think it can, because if you're a young person, and it's generally accepted, accepted there's been a massive rise in mental health issues with young people for one covid it causes and other things. But I think the anonymity of the machine, funnily enough, a machine that you think is human, mm-hmm. means you, I mean, you, you wouldn't go, if you're a 17 year old, you're not going to go to either your parents, certainly not a teacher or a member of faculty in your university where you're mental no. It's yeah. not going to happen. They might be able to be the cause of it. Yeah. <laughs> Which, a good point. Which is why young people suffer in silence. But the anonymity and then sometimes in the suicide rates in the university system are frighteningly high when people feel as though they're failing or fail an exam and the expectation, the pressure externally from the parents and society are enormous. Uh, and I've seen it. I, you know, I remember I was walking along where I, near where I live in Brighton. There was a little cross in the ground on Beachy Head and there was a little description by a parent. And a young girl had thrown herself off Beachy Head because of her exam result. It was a shocking moment for me, mm-hmm. and I'll yeah. never forget it because yeah. it made me deeply reflect 
on the madness of what we do to young people in education. It was really moving. And, you know, we need to solve that. Yeah. So we need to we need to re, re, rework education, rework yeah. learning at work, and really think about how this, this tool can help us. Because it's going to be there. We can't get away from it. It's going to be there. So I think we have to think about how we can use it for for good. Um, yeah. Just in the very last five minutes, Donald, it'd be just good to hear from you, you know, for people who are, you know, are perhaps a bit nervous about getting involved or, you know, don't quite know where to start. What would you recommend they do as a, a starting point? Well, I think there are two or three levels to this. Uh, the starting point for me always is just get the app on your phone. <laughs> so you can download Bing or just get Chat, G Chat uh, GPT as a website. You just go to it and use it, you know, and just sign up for it. You'll be yeah. using Chat. Uh, GPT-3, which is a bit like the old version, but that's okay, it's free. And it will amaze you anyway. So just use it. You know, there are three versions of this. But the second level is, it will already be marbled like fat into the meat, I call it, you know, because it will be in your Microsoft and Google tools if you're using them anyway. So it's just going to be there. <laughs> and what, if you use a word processor or PowerPoint, it will just be there helping you as an assistant. So that's the second level. I think the third level is think seriously about how it's going to help you in formal learning. So, you know, come at Stellar Labs, but, you know, or do it yourself. But certainly think about how this helps in your context, in your organization, because it will. And to be honest, people are doing it. But anyway. They're just getting on with it anyway. But don't let them bypass you. Join the movement. If you're just seen as, you know, the old school department who just, oh, no, another compliance course. Are they really going to, do I really have to do this? If that's it, we're painting ourselves in a corner if we don't adopt the new technology because they will just overtake us in the motorway and they'll overtake us at 100 miles an hour while we're going at 10 miles an hour. So you can then start thinking about the context. And I've been doing a lot of this. You know, you go into a big organization, you go, and I, I say this, I say, get well, they're already doing it. Play to that. It's a change management issue. Create a sense of urgency around it. Get people, you don't have to get people excited by this technology. And you're hundreds of millions of people are already excited by it. So the, the engagement, you know, that old issue, you know, it's an old trope, really. Oh, you need engagement and learning. A hun hundreds of millions of people are engaged. There's not a problem, guys. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. If, le if learning is relevant, if learning is valuable and useful and enables you to do your job better, you don't need to promote engagement. People are engaged because they can see the purpose. Yeah. And on that, to finish off on that hierarchy, you know, so just play with it, level, and then come up the ladder a bit, you know, coming further up in L&D, as you know, we, well, we've been working a lot on this sort of stuff. There are sort of some formal learning-focused tools that have taken away a lot of the pain and effort for you. We've built it into the model, as it were, so that Chat GPT not only is this amazing thing that knows all these things and produce good stuff, action-oriented, performance-oriented. We've always wanted this in L&D. Now it's here. Why not use it? The difficulty most people will have is just that rather mechanical, you know, what do I, what do I type in here? Well, we've done that work for you. We've taken a, a really super prompting view of the world, informed by neuroscience, cognitive science, all the good stuff about space practice, action, transfer, you know, all of that good stuff. Even how you can write a good question so that you're <laughs> giving the answer away, you know. We've got, we've got good case studies, got scenario-based learning in there. It's building the scenarios. I, I know how long yeah. that takes because I used to do it for a living. But yeah. we've taken all that pain away for you and say, well, listen, say, I want a course on X uh, for this target audience at this level, and I want it in five languages. Press a button. Who wouldn't want this? <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> <laughs>
Donald, thank you so much for giving us that kind of, um, you know, very broad geographically and historically uh, view on on AI. Thank you for sharing some of the things that we, you know, we're already doing within the Stellar Labs project. And, yeah. you know, I think there are other organizations out there hopefully doing the same. Um, it's been great to talk to you as always. And thank you very much for being with us today. It was a pleasure, Stella. So, yes, uh, as always, you know, it's exciting times. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs>